All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's find our places. And we are starting off a Christmas series. Merry Christmas, let me be the first to say. Merry Christmas to everybody. Tis the season, right? We're here to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole world does that. Isn't it, isn't it weird? Does it seem weird to y'all, or is it just me? Does it seem, it seems weird to me that People who will celebrate the birth of the coming of the Savior to the world and reject the Savior in their lives. That's weird. But they do. Um, instead of committing their lives to that eternal truth, which is what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks, what we talk about every year, it's what the whole world is geared up to hear about every year. What are people typically consumed with today? Well, if you watch the news, I mean, you think they're just consumed with the political narrative, right? They're interested in our president and impeachment, and they're interested in the next election. They're trying to figure out why all the millennials love socialism. They're, they're interested in all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, why, you know, I, I ask myself, why, are people, why do people get so fired up about this subject, about the whole political thing? I mean, I, I'm not disinterested but I try and keep it in the proper perspective it's not that interesting to me why are people so fired up about that subject and it kind of dawned on me well they're fired up about that subject I think for a fair reason because people actually are they really do care about who's in charge they really do care about the fact that whoever is in charge makes significant decisions that have consequences in our lives well, what I'd like to do in this series that we're going through for Christmas this year is take that thought and make it just a little bit bigger. Okay, a whole lot bigger. And, and try and help us to see how the mindset of the unsaved world today, focused on the things they're focused on, would be best channeled through, obviously, the biblical understanding. And so, you know, I mean... If their perspective is the greatest thing I can channel my resources and energy into is local, state, national government, because that affects me, well, that's their perspective. And, you know, perspective matters, doesn't it? And so we view Christmas from our perspective, and our perspective as Christian people is that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to save us from our sins. That's our perspective. But I want to share with you something today, and this is in your notes, that God's perspective of Christmas is bigger than salvation. You realize that? God's perspective of what Christmas is really all about is actually, is it possible, even bigger than our individual salvation. So the series title that we've selected as the eternal purpose of Christmas. There is an eternal purpose to what Christmas is really all about. And, well, you shouldn't be surprised if you frequent this church anyway. It deals with God's establishment of His kingdom over the entire universe. So today what I want us to do in our first Sunday in this series is look at the title of today's message is Christmas from God's Perspective. I want to introduce this subject for the next two weeks after this week 
with your shifting and setting your perspective towards God's perspective of why Christmas. Why is that so important? Now, in order to do that, I'm going to give you a very quick overview of, well, the entire Bible narrative, the theme of the scriptures as we know it. Now, for many of you, this will be review, but for some of you, this may be the first time. And so I'm going to go through some scriptures very quickly. Try and keep up. Just, just do what you can and, and hang with me, and I think it will all make sense as we go. The Bible starts where it should start in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning. And in the beginning, what happened? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the original creation was set up when it was set up, and the Bible describes and records that event for us. I want to shift your attention towards what that creation really was all about by going to Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 16. In Colossians 1.16, I want you to notice, by him, the context is directly Jesus Christ, all things are created. And when he begins to list all the things that are created, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say trees and animals and fish and birds and land and sea and people. What does he say when he says all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers? You see, because when God created all things, he created them with his express purpose and viewpoint and perspective of an eternal, everlasting kingdom with thrones and dominions and principalities and powers that will rule over the entire universe. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the very second verse in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1-2, describes something that is chaotic, something that doesn't fit, something that doesn't make sense. So God created heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. So something went desperately wrong. Somewhere between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, there has to have been a gap. Something occurred in the white space between those two verses because nowhere in Scripture does God create anything without form and void. And darkness is always a form of judgment. It's the absence of light, the deep. You study that through the Scriptures. It's always a form of judgment. And so something went wrong and God had to judge it. Well, we know what that is, and today's not the day to convince all of you if you're not convinced. It's okay. Just roll with this and see if it doesn't make sense. We go to Isaiah chapter 14. And we know what happened at one point in history. When exactly was that? I believe it was in the white space between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. There was a creature named Lucifer. By the way, you'll never find Lucifer unless you're reading a King James Bible. It's the only Bible that he's listed in. And Lucifer, it talks about his plan and what he said that he would do, right? We know Lucifer ultimately when he falls becomes the devil and Satan. But he said in his heart, verse 13, I'll ascend into heaven. What's he going to do? I'm going to exalt my throne. You see the theme? Above the stars of God. There's always the theme of thrones. God went to establish his, and Lucifer, the anointed cherub, and we see that in Ezekiel chapter 28, he, in, as the anointed cherub, he wants to exalt his throne above the stars of God. He wants to be like God. He wants to be in the sides of the north. And I want you to notice in Ezekiel 28, and we come down, there you go, in verses 14 and 15, where was he located at? He was actually located in, is that back in verse number 13, in Eden, in Eden in the Garden of God. 
So we find out that there was this created being, Lucifer, and, and he got rebellion in his heart, and it was all about authority and thrones and dominion, and he wanted to exalt himself up to the level of God. And the place from which he had some dominion is actually located for you. It's called Eden. Well, we know what happened to him. He was cast down. He was judged. And God replaced him. And when God replaced him, he replaced him with the crown of all of his creation in the six days of creation. On the sixth day, God made man in his own image. Oh, and where did God place man? Genesis 2, 7 and 8. He placed him in a garden in Eden. He placed him in a garden in Eden. So God does this face job on Lucifer and Satan. And he's like, I, I got this. You tried to come up against me. I cast you down and I'll replace you. By the way, that's a good lesson for all of us. God doesn't need any of us. You try and lift yourself up, exalt yourself against God, he'll put you down and replace you. He can replace me or you or anybody. And that's what he does. But this man, Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, it's the last verse of that long genealogy in the book of Luke. It tells us that Adam was the son of God. And of course he's the son of God because a son of God is defined as any direct creation of God. And so the angels are called sons of God and Adam is called the son of God. And so Satan doesn't like this now. He's fallen. God's replaced him. He placed him in the very place. He placed him with the very dominion. He put him in charge of everything. And so in Genesis 3 and verse 6, you know the story. Satan causes man to sin and to fall. And Back in Genesis 2 and verse 17 was the admonition that, hey, don't eat of that tree because in the day, the very day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now, again, most all of you know that that death certainly was not a physical death. They continued to live many years and have children, but it was a spiritual death. They lost the very image of God. So man falls spiritually, inherits a sin nature, but from the context of the kingdom, from the context of ruling the universe, from the context of placing man as the king, as the son of God in Eden on earth, from that point, what we see is God's kingdom is split into two aspects. We have a physical aspect, generally referred to as the kingdom of heaven. We have a spiritual aspect, generally referred to as the kingdom of God. What we have in your Bible, basically, I'm generalizing, the entire Old Testament narrative, because there are no more sons of God in the Old Testament that are human. There are angels that are called sons of God, but there are no more men that are called sons of God in the Old Testament. Again, review for many of you, some of you it might be new. The entire Old Testament deals with only the literal, physical, political, national kingdoms. It deals with one particular nation, the nation of Israel, that are set aside as God's people, and they are to do what God says and ultimately rule over the other nations. So what is the general overview of the Old Testament? The general overview of the Old Testament is a political struggle. We have kings and kingdoms and lands and wars and bloodshed. And then you come into the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's Christmas, and we'll be talking about that. And basically in the New Testament, generally speaking, the majority of it deals with just the opposite. Only the spiritual kingdom, not the physical. So our life in Christ is a spiritual life in Christ. We are sons of God spiritually by faith in Jesus Christ. We have no claim to literal, political, national territories. 
We don't, we don't fight with flesh and blood, right? That's not where our warfare is. It's a spiritual one. And so generally, the Old Testament is the physical kingdom only, the kingdom of heaven. The New Testament is the spiritual kingdom only, the kingdom of God. But there are slivers of time. There are times when both kingdoms come together at the same time. And that's when Jesus Christ shows up. That's Christmas. And this is the focus I want you to see. Because in the Old Testament, which is roughly three-quarters of the volume of the pages in your Bible, it advances this notion of this physical nation, right? But God offers the spiritual kingdom to man upon the arrival of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, as not just the Son of God, but God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, is the only rightful king over both kingdoms he's the rightful king over both kingdoms and so christmas celebrates what we read in first timothy three sixteen: the mystery of godliness god was manifest in the flesh jesus christ emmanuel god with us that's what christmas celebrates so from god's perspective christmas the very first instance when Jesus Christ was born, right, is the pivotal event to finally fulfill, to set in place the pieces, to fulfill his eternal purpose for the universe. Now we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look in chapter number one this week, and Lord willing, we'll be in chapter two the next week, and we'll go on from there. But we're going to look at several verses in the middle of Luke chapter one. You can follow along. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to go down to verse 35. Luke 1.26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So we're going to dive into these verses, and we're going to break it down, and I think you're going to get some understanding. Let's, let's ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you, we ask that you would focus our attention and our mind on the words that you have in this scripture and help us to see with your help exactly what it is we need to understand. We, we do want to see Christmas from your perspective. We, we actually want to see all of life from your perspective and then we can better understand where we fit in your grand scheme of things. We can better understand what our purpose is. We can better understand why we're here and what we're here to fulfill and what our life is really all about. But if you would grant us, Lord, your vision and your understanding so that we could see the bigger picture. It'll help us. I pray that we'd all be humble and submissive to what you have to teach us. We thank you in advance and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're going to begin today's study with 
something that you might not necessarily expect, and I'm calling our first point Satan's confusing message of religion. Now, it's not directly stated. You'll see exactly where I'm going with this in a minute, but certainly God is on the verge of doing something eternally significant, ridiculously significant in history at this time, right? So don't you know Satan's going to fight it? Don't you know that anytime God speaks, Satan's strategy is to take what God says and to twist it and to use it for his purposes to try and thwart the strategy and the plan and the purpose of God. So what does God do when he wants to prepare for the very first Christmas? How is he bringing about that announcement? Well, he sent a very specific angel, one with a name, Gabriel, to announce it in verses 26 and 27. But the following verses are twisted by the devil, and they're actually used today to confuse millions, well, actually billions of people on the planet. Satan has a confusing message using these scriptures, and it's, well, it's the message of religion. It's what it is. So the first thing I want us to see in setting up this whole story, letter A in your notes, are cultic imitations. There are imitations of the real. This is what Satan does, right? He's an imitator. And it has been the development of what we refer to as cults, false religions. I'm not going to get into this very deeply, but you should understand that Satan's primary realm of operation is religion. It's not in the most sinful dens of drugs or prostitution or lying and theft or whatever it is you might consider to be the most sinful acts that are going on in the world today. Satan's primary focus of his effort is in religion. And the cults and the counterfeits, well, they all want to claim God's stamp of approval. And a lot of them will do it by saying that, well, our revelation came to us via the mouth of an angel. Have you ever heard that? And so we have the most widespread, growing religion in the world, and that's Islam. And, well, Muslims have their story that the angel, wouldn't you know it, Gabriel, came and spoke to the prophet Muhammad. Uh, it's not just them. You could talk about the Mormon church, and the Mormons have their angel. They call him Moroni, and he spoke to a man named Joseph Smith. And they say, an angel of light appeared, and he revealed to me this. And in each case, there's extra information that goes beyond what the Bible says. Of course there's extra information. And when they, people would say, well, our leader saw an angel of light, our leader heard from, I would say, I believe you. Because Satan always shows himself as an angel of light. And you have to be careful about these things. Well, this particular announcement comes in a very unusual way because in verses 26 and 27 it says, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel sent from God into a city named Nazareth to a virgin, espoused to a, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. Now, the reason this is very un unique is, is the angel is speaking directly to a woman. And, and you actually don't find that that frequently, but let me just tell you who would never go for that. The Muslims would never go for that. They'd never go for that. Because when supposedly Gabriel spoke to Muhammad, it developed their religious faith. And, well, the result of that came out with a religion that, well, treats women pretty harshly. In Islam, for example, men are superior to women. Uh, it's actually stated that women are intellectually inferior to men. 
um, it stated that whenever a woman leaves her house, the devil is welcoming her. Uh, women are deficient in religion. A woman can't go to paradise unless her husband is pleased with her. And so, sadly, it plays out in a lot of bad ways, but their men are allowed to beat their wives as they please. You know, I'll never understand, my, and truly, my heart goes out to the millions and, like I said, maybe even billions of people that are deceived by this as they're born into that system and the countries they're born into, but I'll never, honestly, never understand how a, a Western woman born in true political liberty, the truly liberated, free Western woman would voluntarily decide, I'm going to convert to Islam. I'll never understand it. I'll never understand it. Well, beyond just the fact that there are many cultic imitations of this type of a setup that God used, I, I really want you to see letter B in your notes, and that's the Catholic interpretations. Y you really need to understand how it's perverted in that realm as well, because I want you to notice specifically what Gabriel says to Mary in verse 28. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou, art, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, and then if we look down in verse 30, it repeats it again, uh, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. So before we get into the specific message, I do want to take a few minutes to clarify what are some widely propagated myths that are out there, specifically concerning this person, Mary. So what I want you to get is what I put in your notes, the biblical Mary versus the Catholic Mary. They're not the same. They're not the same. The Roman Catholic Church places an undue, and can I say unhealthy, certainly non-biblical amount of honor on Mary. Uh, some of you come from a Catholic background, and maybe there are active Catholics that are listening. I don't mean to be unkind. I'm just quoting your sources as well when one of the things that good Catholics are instructed to do is to pray the Hail Mary prayer. And the Hail Mary prayer goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And this prayer is to be repeated by faithful Catholics three times every morning and three times every evening, asking Mary to intercede for them. Now, just looking at this little item, there, the problems abound. Because if ever there was vain repetitions, this is vain repetitions. Just repeat, wrote that same set of words over and over and over and over. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus says specifically, don't use vain repetitions like who? Like the heathen do, lost people. Now, the phrase that comes from that Catholic prayer, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Well, that comes from verse 28 that we just read. That's actually okay, and it goes on and it says, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Actually, that comes from verse 42, where Mary meets her cousin Elizabeth, who's already pregnant with John the Baptist, and, 
And Elizabeth makes the statement too, Mary, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. So if you want to say that's fair, okay, that's from Luke 128 and 142. But what continues in that prayer, quite frankly, is blasphemy. Because it does say, I want you to know in verse 28, thou art highly favored. But don't take that too far. Don't take that too far. Listen, in the Bible, she wasn't highly favored enough for Jesus to ever even call her mother. Jesus called her woman. She wasn't highly favored enough for even one of the disciples to ever consult her about anything. The Catholic prayer says, Holy Mary. Well, Mary's not sinless. Nor is she, as they teach, a co-redemptrix, meaning she's a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. Jesus can get you to heaven and so can Mary. She's none of those things, right? Holy Mary. In fact, in fact, the scriptures recognize her as the scriptures recognize all of us as a sinner needing a savior. In Luke 147, it says, Mary says, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Well, why do you need a Savior if you're holy? Right? In, in Luke 145, she was blessed. But why was she blessed? She was blessed because she believed. That's why she was blessed. And by the way, and in verse 28, it does not say, Blessed art thou above women. It says, Blessed art thou among women. You see, the Mary of the Bible is not to be held in a position above anybody, men or women. But that Catholic prayer goes on to say, Mother of God. Now I want you to stop and think about that for a second, because what that is is a perversion, again, of Elizabeth's words when she met Mary in Luke 143, where she says, And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Okay, well, that has a specific context, but to say that Mary is the mother of God is blasphemy. God is eternal. God has no mother. And Mary is blessed among women because she was selected. God let her be the one to bring forth the Savior. That's it. Nothing else. It goes on and it asks Mary, pray for us sinners now where first timothy 2 5 says that jesus christ is the only mediator between god and man only jesus christ so the catholic mary is a fabrication of satan to keep people in bondage but the biblical mary don't get me wrong I'm not trying to run her down god blessed her she's a good woman moral a loving mother feared god knew the scriptures who by the way was quoted as speaking in the scriptures only one time. Do you know what? Would you like to know what Mary said the one time she's quoted? John 2, 5. The wedding in Cana at Galilee. What are we going to do? We ran out of wine. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, pointing to Jesus, do that. <laughs> Listen, all good Catholics ought to take, take Mary's advice. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, friends, that's what you should do. That's what you should do. So, enough of the confusing message of religion. Let's look at number two, God's clear message of redemption. 
God's clear message of redemption. So we're going to go back to our theme, God's eternal purpose for Christmas. He's working to redeem his eternal purpose for all creation. That's what Christmas is about. Why, why is that not on the news? I mean, what really, what, tell me, friends, in the news media, what news story is bigger than that? None of them. They're not, they're not reporting that, though, are they? Okay, in order to do that, in order for God to pull that off, there's some work that needs to be done, so let's walk through it. Letter A. First, he's going to clarify the rules. And you need to get this, because here's rule number one, spiritual before physical. Spiritual comes before physical, right? We know the history now. Since man sinned and lost God's image, and the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, went out in the Old Testament, at the time of the birth of the Savior, some 2,000 years ago, all there is is a physical, political narrative, a literal kingdom of heaven. That is all that exists at the time of the birth, birth of Jesus Christ. But once Jesus Christ arrives, and once he grows up, and once he begins his public ministry, then we begin to see some things in the New Testament, right? So in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 15, we see this. So the, here's the preaching, and he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. So the, the, the clever Bible students, okay, the kingdom of God, repent and believe. Okay, now I'm going to switch over. I'm going to be reading through the Bible. I'm in Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 17. It's almost the same story in Matthew 4, 17. Here it is. Repent for the kingdom of, uh-oh, heaven is at hand. Well, which one is it? Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdom of heaven? Uh, well, don't go to commentaries to find out. They don't know. The commentaries are going to tell you, well, they're the same. The stories are the same. The time is the same. The message is the same. God, heaven, heaven, God. Well, no, they're different words. They mean different things. Heaven is a place. God is a spirit. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of, a, kingdom of heaven is a literal location. It's a physical kingdom. Why are they both being offered at the same time? Because the king of both is here. And when both of them show up at the same time, it only occurs at an advent. An advent is the coming of the Lord to earth. Jesus Christ is the king of both, has the right to offer both. But here's the key. Here's the key, and you've got to get this. The Jews didn't get it. We need to get it. You need to receive that kingdom of God, the spiritual one, first. You know that in the Gospel of Matthew that we read, that is, um, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that kingdom of heaven phrase appears only in Matthew. Because Matthew is the book that describes Jesus Christ as the king of the Jewish nation. So it's emphasizing that aspect of his eternal purpose. But in that gospel of Matthew, there are few select times where the Holy Spirit uses the phrase kingdom of God. And the one you need to draw your attention to is the one that you may be most familiar with in Matthew 6.33. Where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the physical things of a kingdom of heaven, will be added unto you. Because in the Bible, friends, and this is the rule, this is the principle, righteousness always precedes peace. Every time. Everybody's talking about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Not without righteousness you won't have it. 
There's nothing but wars. The, the United Nations peacekeeping movement has tanks and missiles. You ever wonder about that? Righteousness always precedes peace. Hebrews chapter 7, this mysterious character Melchizedek, right? Talking about who he is. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham during the return, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being interpret, by interpretation king of righteousness. Righteousness is first. And after that, king of Salem, which is king of peace. You've got to get the righteousness or the peace isn't coming. James chapter 3 and verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Oh, oh then it's peaceable. Then it's peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. By the way, that's good advice for your life too. Do you know that? Do you have turmoil in your life? Do you have trouble? Do you have strife? Do you find yourself struggling and fighting and, and constantly in conflict with other people for whatever reason? I'm not saying it's your fault but I'm saying that you at least ought to do yourself a favor and make sure you follow the rules. The rules say start with righteousness. Get the righteousness part down in your life first. And, even, and at a minimum, even if your enemy won't be at peace with you, you can be at peace in your heart with yourself because you're righteous. Because you're righteous. So the first key is the ground rule, which will then help you understand the next point's in our outline, letter B, the first advent, the fulfillment starts. At the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ, the, the birth of the Savior child, Christmas, we have some prophecies. And so in verses 31 and 32, we have a list of, well, the beginning of verse 32. We're going to stop there and look at the first five prophecies that are given. There's actually eight in total. It says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus, and he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. All these five prophecies came to pass. They were all true. They were all confirmed at the first advent, at the first Christmas. So let's just look at them one by one, okay? The first one, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Well, she did. It says in verse 27, of Luke chapter 1, a virgin. She's a virgin espoused or engaged to be married to a man. Um, you could go down to verse 34. Mary, when she's replying to the angel at the end of this message, she says, how, how is it possible seeing I know not a man? And obviously that's a fair response, right? So that a girl who is a virgin, it means she's never had relations. And so how is it possible that she's going to conceive in her womb? Well, that's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. A lot of you know that. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a legitimate miracle, y'all. I mean, this is something that man cannot pull off. This is something that only God can do. A virgin is going to have a child. By the way, Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and all the cults and all the false religions, they're going to reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God, because they can't get through their mind the idea that somehow God had some relations physically with this girl. But that's not the case at all. In fact, the angel answers Mary's question and tells her what happens in verse 35. The angel answered, said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest 
shall overshadow thee, therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit has no problem. God has no difficulty whatsoever in implanting the child in her womb without having to have physical relations. Of course that's the case. That's a prophecy. That took place. The second one, and bring forth a son. Well, she did. Now, I point that out because it doesn't just say you'll bring forth a child. And she didn't bring forth a daughter. She brought forth a son. And in a Jewish context, that's particularly important because the firstborn son receives the blessing of the inheritance. And so this comes, for example, from Isaiah 9 and verse 6. We'll just look at the first phrase. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now that phraseology is very important. It doesn't say a son is born. It says a son is given because Jesus Christ is God, the Son, eternally existing long before he came to earth as a baby. So the Son of God eternally existed. The Son is just given. But a child, the human nature, well, the child was born. The child isn't eternally existing. The Son is eternally existing. You see the difference? So the words of your Bible are very specific, and they're very accurate. And so she shall bring forth a son, right? And it goes on, and it says in Isaiah 9, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, there's the inheritance, and we'll get into that more as we move on a little further. But I also want to point out, while we're just kind of landing the plane on what God intended and how Satan tries to twist it, You need to understand that this was Mary's firstborn son. There were others. I mean, after Jesus and and Joseph was going to put her away privately and the Holy Spirit said, don't do that. And, you know, they ultimately were married and they ultimately had more children. Right. That's the natural thing to do. Luke chapter two and verse seven says she brought forth her firstborn son. Well, if there's a firstborn There's obviously some others, right? So in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3, is this not the carpenter? They're trying to recognize who Jesus is. The son of Mary. Oh, the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judah and of Simon. Well, there's at least four brothers. And are not his sisters here with us? So he had a lot of siblings. He had all kinds of siblings. And they were offended at him. But she brought forth a son according to the prophecy, according to the scriptures. And he's not the only son. Mary's not an eternal virgin, as the Catholic Church would want to teach you. She had other children, normal life. Third prophecy addressed, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Well, they did. They called his name Jesus. That's fulfilled, right? Now, he has some other names in the Bible. We could go back to Isaiah 9, 6, and and it says, his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's got a lot of other names, okay? If you have never noticed, by the way, you should notice that unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called among the other names, not just the Mighty God, so the Son is God himself, the Everlasting Father. Do you ever see that? The Son is the Father. The Father is the Son. Go home and figure that out over lunch. You can't do it. No, because it's a miracle. 
Because it's the Trinity of God. It's the very Godhead, right? That's who he is. But in this case, we're talking about the name Jesus. And the name Jesus is very significant. The same revelation God gave through the angel to Joseph, not just to Mary. So in this case, it's to Mary. But if we took Matthew's gospel in verse 21, it says, and the angel is speaking, it says up to Joseph about Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. But it goes on with Joseph and explains a little bit why this is the name. For he, the boy Jesus, shall save his people from their sins. Because the name Jesus literally means Savior. That's what it means. Jehovah saves. That's who he is. You will call the name of this child Jehovah saves. You could go on in Matthew 1 and go down to verses 22 and 23, and it says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now we saw Isaiah 7:14 before, and that's what it's quoting here in Matthew 1:23. But here notice it says that they'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is Jehovah saves. Jehovah is God. Emmanuel is God. That's who he is. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Almighty God. That's who he is. So the God is the Savior. The Savior is the God. They're not distinct and separate one from each other. That's why Mary says in Luke 147, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. God is the Savior. You find this all through the Scriptures. Back in the prophet Hosea 13, verse number 4, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. The Jehovah God that led them out of Egypt is the very same God that ultimately is Jesus Christ. So in Titus 2.13, written to the church, Looking for that blessed hope, church, and the glorious appearing of whom? The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. They're not looking for the appearing of two different entities, the appearance of God, oh, and the appearance of Jesus. No, the great God and our Savior is Jesus. That's who it is. got to get the context. God himself is the Savior of the world, but really, historically, at the time of the unfolding, he's the Savior of Israel. Because the salvation that he's referring to, you've got to notice the immediate context, is not specifically the salvation of their souls, but the salvation of their nation from all of the other, can I say, united nations that want to destroy them from the face of the planet. Now, if you remember the rules that righteousness has to precede peace, the personal salvation of their souls is a part of that story. But the ultimate picture is I'm establishing my kingdom, united, physical, spiritual kingdom in the universe. That's what Christmas is all about. Yes, he's the Savior for our sins. Hallelujah. But that is a subsequent part, a piece of a greater puzzle. The fourth prophecy, he shall be great. Well, he certainly was and is. Amen. This phrase is used also of John the Baptist in Luke 1.15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. 
Well, that's very interesting. John the Baptist is considered great because he's filled with the Holy Ghost from the very conception. Yet even that John, which the scriptures say is the greatest of all the law and the prophets, that John had this to say about Jesus in Luke 3.16. John answered and said to them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. One greater than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Because that word great is often used in the scriptures in the superlative. Greater or greatest. So the Holy Spirit testifies of him in Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth. Listen, the name of Jesus is above every single. There's none like him. There is none like him. And number five, he shall be called the son of the highest. Well, he was. Well, the highest, that phrase, the highest, well, that's referring to God the Father. Psalm 18, 13, the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice. The highest is the Lord. He's, he's, he's Jehovah God. So the son of the highest is the son of God. And that's what we read in verse number 35. He shall be called the son of God. He's also called in Luke 1.76, you can glance over there, the prophet of the highest. He's the prophet of the highest, will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. In other words, Jesus Christ carried the message of God to us. So you could continue in Luke's uh, 1.77 to 79. What's the message? To give knowledge of salvation unto his people. By the way, in the context, his people are Israel. By the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you see how the remission of sins precedes the way of peace? Are you seeing how that fits together? Hebrews chapter 1, verse numbers 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days since the coming of the Lord Spoken unto us how? By his son. By his son, because he's also the prophet of the highest. You see, the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose for Christmas begins with five prophecies that came to pass in the life of Jesus Christ. But God's people, Israel, well, they rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because they didn't want righteousness they just wanted peace. They wanted peace without righteousness. They did not want to play by the rules. They wanted him to be the king of their land and to rule over all their enemies, but they did not want to surrender their hearts to their own sinfulness and his forgiveness. So they rejected him. So complete fulfillment is postponed another 2,000 years. And that's letter C of our outline. At the second advent, at the second advent, the foolishness stops. The foolishness stops. And these are the three remaining prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Let's break those down. The Lord shall give unto him 
the throne of his father David. When has that ever happened? Well, that hadn't happened yet. It's referring to a literal throne in Jerusalem as a literal king over the entire earth. This is all through the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. Zechariah 14, 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Go down to verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. All the nations are going to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. When, oh, by the way, this is the millennium, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting little thing. That thing's coming back again. It's also referred to in Matthew 25 as the throne of his glory in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes at the second advent, right, then he will sit upon the throne of his glory. You say, that's just spiritual. He sits on that throne in glory in my heart today. Sorry, friends. Not if you compare Scripture with Scripture, it's not. It's a literal throne. You can't spiritualize it that way. Because he said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I suppose all that's spiritualized, too. It's also referred to the, as the throne of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 29, 23. Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Why is it called the throne of the Lord? Because ultimately it's his throne. Ultimately he's going to come and sit in it. Solomon succeeded David, right? His father. Well, he's going to rule in the throne of David. That's what it says. It belongs to Jesus Christ upon his advent. And this is the theme of God's entire revelation to man. Let me give you a few more. Isaiah 16, 5. In mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. The prophet Nathan speaks to King David while he was still around before he passes, and, and he gives him this word in 2 Samuel 7, 11, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Listen, this is not a reference to Solomon, even though Solomon built the temple after David. This is a reference to the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon's kingdom and throne did not last forever, like it says here. And it says, he shall be called my son. You say, see, there's a man in the Bible who's called the son of God. No, sorry, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. That's not a reference to Solomon. Only in type is Solomon like Jesus Christ. And notice that last phrase, and with the stripes of the children of men. Well, don't you know that Jesus Christ had no sin of his own? He didn't actually commit iniquity. It says if in those verses. But you know that by his stripes, which belong to us, by the way, we are healed. We are healed. He took our stripes. He took our stripes. Listen, y'all, don't get confused about any of this stuff. When Jesus Christ returns again, he will judge sin and rebellion. And all of the foolishness of mocking him will cease. 
He's not coming back again as the lowly Galilean. He's coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're not going to mock him. They're not going to spit on him. They're not going to pull his beard. They're not going to beat him. They're not going to crucify him, not this time. The next prophecy, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, that hadn't happened yet. The house of Jacob is the family of Jacob. The 12 sons become the 12 tribes. Jacob becomes Israel. These are called my people in the Bible. Psalm 89, 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed, the seed of David, shall endure forever. And his throne, the throne of David, as the sun before me, it shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. In the millennium, the house of Jacob is to rule over all of the other geopolitical nations on this planet. Do you know that? That's the promise God gave in Deuteronomy 28, 13. The Lord shall make thee, Israel, the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. For if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. Well, if they'd have not blown it, they could have achieved that a lot quicker but they wouldn't believe. Well, let's get to the end of this because these, this theme is now becoming clear and I think we've come to the end, the last prophecy in the list, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. You know that in your life history and all of your studies and all of your reading of books and, and all of your watching of documentaries, you've never one time in your life heard of a kingdom that had no end. They all come and they all go, but not this one. This one's gonna come and it's gonna stay forever and ever. So this prophecy is not just about the seventh major dispensation called the millennial reign of Christ. This prophecy goes into eternity. This goes beyond the end of the millennium and the rebellion of Gog and Magog and the rising up of Satan after being bound for a thousand years. This goes off into, into the universe. His kingdom has no end. No end. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 8. But unto the Son, Jesus Christ, he saith, thy throne, O God, oh yeah, he is God, it's going to last a good while, forever and ever. A scepter, that's what a king holds, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Remember Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, let's go ahead and read it through verse 7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice, from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Of his kingdom, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. It's going to increase, not just in power, it's going to increase in size and it's going to go far beyond this planet because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And he's going to rule over all of it forever. The prophecy of, the, of Daniel in chapter number 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the people and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So in looking forward to that day when he comes to claim his rightful place in Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, it says the kingdoms of this world 
are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Listen, y'all, Christmas is a little bit bigger than maybe we've been thinking about it. That should be on the news. Well, they're not going to talk about it. Okay, well, let's us talk about it. Let's us go tell our friends about it. Let's us go let them know why this is such a big deal. This passage in Luke chapter 1, often read in the Christmas time, has eight prophecies. Eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings because seven is the number of completion. And when you get to number eight, God starts over. Not us, not, not us Gentiles. We count up to 10. We get to 10 and we start over. Then we add a 1, 11, 12, 13. God goes to 7, he starts over with 8. Eight's a new beginning every time. Why eight prophecies for Christmas? Because he's offering the world a new beginning. It's all messed up, and it needs a fresh start. You see, Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ to earth as a man, is not just to give you a religious holiday from work and an excuse to buy too many presents for each other. And you know what Christmas is also not just? It's not just to offer salvation to lost man. It is that. Thank the Lord for that. But it's to prepare the world stage, which we'll actually see more of next week, for his ultimate fulfillment of his eternal plan to rule the universe of his creation. And that kingdom that has no end, his creation that will worship him in that kingdom are only people who have surrendered their heart and their life and willingly submit and follow him. That's where your personal salvation comes in. That's where it's so important to us. But the people that harden their hearts and stiffen their necks and say, no, thank you, and I'm smarter than that, and that's a fable, and religion's the crutch and the opiate of the people and all the different things that people say, okay. Give it time. See how that plays out for you. Roll the dice if you want to. My advice is don't do it. Don't do it. Your salvation decision is the greatest decision you could ever make in the world. And if you're here today and you're not 100% sure that God forbid your life were to end tragically, physically before this day is done, if you're not sure you'd have a home in heaven, you know what today can be? Today can be your number eight. It can be your new beginning. It can be the time that you surrender your heart finally and you say enough, seven is enough, enough of my life, enough of me being in charge. I just make a mess of it. We need a new beginning. So I invite you to do that. Let's pray together, and if God's speaking to your heart, then, then you go ahead and respond to him. Heavenly Father.